What's so special about Hero Bread's soft, fluffy, and delicious breads, buns, and tortillas? These ultra-low net carb baked goods contain zero sugar, fewer calories, and more protein than the leading brands, and are high in fiber to support gut health. Shop now at Hero.co. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich, but you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. The following is a Hoop Bowl presentation. Greetings, everyone, and welcome to Episode 7 of On The Fly, brought to you by HoopBall.com. We're providing in-flight insight for all Pella fans. I'm your host, Nick Garisco, and as always, I'm here with Pelicans expert, Michael Pelache. You can find him on Twitter, at Mike underscore Pelicans. I'm at Fantasy Law Guy. Pelache, the NBA season is underway, and last night... Tipped off with a te- nationally televised game featuring our Pelicans against the defending champion Toronto Raptors. Unfortunately, although the Pelicans held their own without Zion Williamson and kind of hung in there until the very end, uh, we do come away with a 130 to 122 point loss to open the season. And uh, we have a lot to unpack today. Uh, where, where do you want to start? What did you think about the game last night? I think the first place that I want to start is all these people on Twitter freaking out because we lost to the defending NBA champions. Yeah, granted, they don't have Kawhi Leonard or Danny Green anymore. Well, we didn't have Zion. still a really good team. True. Yeah, I, I, I just I can't get behind the whole idea that, like, I don't know, people just judge these games so harshly. And in reality, like you said, we lost by, you know, whatever, eight or nine points. I can't remember what the exact score was, but we also went to overtime. So, like, would it have been better if we had lost by one point and not gone to overtime? I mean, I just we're, – we're taking all these, like, sort of hard stances on things, and I think it's ridiculous. Like, we played one game, and I thought we played pretty well, and of course there are things to improve. We're not a, an amazing team. I, I think it was pretty much what I expected, and so, therefore, I don't – I don't take a whole lot either way. I was about to ask you what you were surprised at. I was surprised at a lot of things. But ultimately, uh, I want to respond to what you're saying here. I do think that if the Pelicans did not go to overtime last night, it would have been better for the perception for from all the Pella fans out there, especially on Twitter. I think that a lot of the people who are watching, and you're going to get more people watching not only because we have – all of this, all of these expectations and hype this year. I know Zion Williamson's out now, but we still had the hype, and it was a nationally televised game, right? It opened the NBA season, so of course you're going to get all these casual fans who tune into basketball and then start complaining about everything who haven't really followed us. And when I say us, I mean the Pelicans, not our podcast, but also followed our podcast in the off season to kind of prep for what to expect here. A lot of the things that you you and I discussed kind of really did play out as we saw. Uh, but ultimately, my impressions were that we were very fun to watch, right? I mean, we were fast-paced. We were high – it was high-scoring. I think everybody kind of has the green light to shoot, which is interesting. And our we're deep, I like we talked about, right? We are really deep. Our rotation was – uh, we had a lot of depth there, and I know there was a lot of com- rotation complaints, but at the very minimum, I think even the most casual fan can understand that the Pelicans are a much deeper team this year than last year. Yeah, I think what you really nailed is the fact that it's fun. I, I mean, we it felt like for different portions of the game that we were going 120 miles per hour in the interstate, and sometimes that's not the- I'm not endorsing this, but I, it, it, sometimes that might seem really fun, and then sometimes you get into fiery crashes. Like it, it, it was exactly that in the game where you had moments where I remember after I, I can't, I think it was a made shot. The Pelicans quickly got it up court, and then Lonzo just drained this three within maybe like three or four seconds of the shot clock starting. 
and stuff like that's really fun. And then the ugly side of it is when they're rushing the ball up the floor. I think Ingram had a, a long pass to, to Drew that might have been seven or eight feet away from where he actually was. So it's fun. Like you said, I, I'd rather enjoy a mediocre team than hate a team that's above average. And that's kind of where I was in terms of watching the Davis teams. I, I just didn't really enjoy watching them, even though they're probably going to be better than what we'll wind up being this year. I want to get into all of the players specifically, and I, I think we'll have time to do that today. Uh, but first, you know, talking generalities here and big picture stuff, we're not the type of people, at least I'll speak for you for a second, we're not the type of people who are going to pinpoint the loss on one play or one player. And I know that you're more intelligent than to do that. But what do you think the main reason that the Pelicans kind of couldn't close out this game was? Oof. Uh, I think they just sort of ran out of steam. I, I think they, they played really well in the first half, but also it, it's it's a make-or-miss league, and sometimes you just miss shots. I'd say that the third quarter, I, I think, was the one where they had just a bazillion turnovers. I think that the bench unit didn't quite do as well in the third quarter and maybe early fourth quarter as it had done. I have to go back and check on that, so don't you know, obviously don't take that to the bank. But I, I would say mainly also that this is a team that we played that just won a title. Like they know how to lock down and to play well at the very end of a game. We've got a bunch of people who, for the most part, uh, really have not played together at all. And then also, I mean, beyond that, the rotations are extremely confusing because we have twelve people who wind up playing more than ten minutes, and that <laughs> that that is not normal. So like. All these players are, are playing in these with these players that they haven't played before, and they also are doing it with combinations that they haven't played with before. So, like, there's all kinds of acclimating that's going on. I, I don't expect us to be amazing down the stretch early on. I was kind of hinting at the rotation because that seemed to be one of the biggest complaints from especially a lot of the casual observers, and I'm not saying that they're wrong. But when I say casual observers, I mean, you know, I, I – Obviously, you know, I'm in a group text with like, you know, 20 people here. And a lot of the casual Pelicans fans, I would say, were complaining that this was Alvin Gentry's fault, the loss was, and that the rotations were whack. And that, you know, there's all this talk on the big media outlets here. I'm not going to name any by names, but ESPN and saying that we benched Lonzo Ball. I, I think bench was a harsh word for it. but But basically, the point is that how much stock do you put into the rotations being part of the reason that we lost? Oof. Uh, I, I definitely don't think it's the main reason. I, I, I always tend to be a little skeptical that boat, that coaches make a big difference. I kind of think that for the most part, the coaches at the top will probably give you a couple wins and the coaches at the very bottom will give you, you know, you lose you a few games, but I, I don't know, man. I, it just seems like it's sort of a scapegoat thing. And like you said earlier, I'm not a big fan of that. Could it have contributed? Of course. Like, I I, I don't know if that's the reason that we lost. But I, what Schmidt said and what I think made a lot of sense was that one of the reasons Lonzo didn't play as much down the stretch was because he wasn't, he wasn't getting to his spots where he should be as a point guard. And if he's not doing that, then there really isn't a big reason for him to be out there with Drew all the time because Drew is the guy that you want. With the, with the ball in his hand. So it's just sort of like a situation where at the end of the game, sometimes maybe Lonzo won't be getting time. And maybe sometimes he will. And maybe he figures out the very things that he needs to figure out to play alongside Drew. So I, I just, I, I feel like it's a scapegoat thing, man. I, that just feels weak to me. So, yeah, I'm, I tend to agree with you. I think that, actually, I'm going to go ahead and say I flat out agree with you. I, I think that the rotation talk is being overblown. And the Pelicans are a really young team. This is the reason I think that we lost the game. I think that I think it's really simple, actually. And I know we're sitting here doing a podcast and trying to be analytical and everything like that. And everything is more nuanced. And we usually do dive into more nuanced uh, analysis here. But in this case, I think it's very simple. I think the Pelicans and the Raptors were a pretty evenly matched team. And are pretty evenly matched teams, I should say. And we're the young team, and the Raptors are a veteran team. They're a championship team. 
And in crunch time, they closed and we didn't. And I don't think it was a rotational issue like a lot of fans think. I simply think it was a case of an experienced team who has played together and who's won a championship together uh, executing against a young team that hasn't, right? And and by the way, the Raptors were also at home. And I really think it's that simple. I think that we played them evenly until the closing moments and their experience allowed them to pull away. We have, I think, 12 of our 18 players on our roster are were not Pelicans last year. So this is going to happen. We talked about this going into the season. We talked about it on several podcasts in prior episodes, talking about how our rotations were going to be a work in progress and how we're mixing and matching lineup combinations to see what fits. And then you have a situation where Zion goes down right before the season, right? And that kind of throws a wrench into everything we worked on during preseason. And now we're kind of starting from square one. So to me, it was really just, you know, I'm not going to sit here and blame the rotations or Alvin Gentry. I just think that we are a young team that doesn't have experience playing together. And the Raptors are a veteran team who were at home and they won a championship together last year. And, Championship teams tend to close in the final minutes more so than really young, inexperienced teams like the Pelicans. It's going to happen again. Like, this will not be the only game that that happens, right? Yeah, and I think, too, so, like, I don't want to be – I don't want to over-conclude here, but a lot of times when I see people blame rotations, I legitimately think it's because they don't have anything else to point to. I think it's because they want to blame it on something. They can't point something specific outside of coaching – because coaching is sort of the most intangible of all of that. Right. And I think they do that. The way that I look at it is this. So going into that game, I can't remember, I don't know what Vegas had them at in terms of the spread, I but I, I'm guessing 5. that Toronto was favored. Yeah, I think it was 7. Right, okay, 5. so that's a that's not a small spread. Okay, yeah. so Toronto, the Toronto Raptors are a better team, and we, are, we do not have Zion. We have a lot less continuity. We have a new defensive system being put in place. And I don't see how people so like if the fact that we overperformed shouldn't if, if it really is Gentry's fault that we lost by, you know, X points or whatever, or that we lost the game, then is it because of him that we were even in the game? Like, that's just a stupid argument, in my opinion. Yeah. Like if you and some people are smart enough to look at that and to give reasons. Unfortunately, there are bazillion different combinations of things that could have happened within the game to where we'll never know. Right. And I think that's what makes it harder to conclude and to actually point towards specific evidence. But I, I came away from that game thinking, okay, this team is pretty much exactly what I thought it was going to be. And therefore they're really, it's one game anyway. And there's nothing really that stood out to me that was bad enough or good enough to really change my opinion. Yeah. I actually came away from the game more optimistic than I was going into the game. Uh, I realized that the, Raptors were favored by 7.5, and they actually ended up covering only because of overtime, of course, right? Which, by the way, uh, you know, side topic here, I actually think overtime should end all spread bets, right? Like even in the NFL too. Like if a bet is a certain team wins by three and that's how it ends in regulation, I think it should end like that. But anyway, that's just my personal opinion because I I think overtime is an impossible thing to predict and account for, and that kind of ruins point spreads. But the Raptors only covered because of overtime, and we were, I mean, gosh, the eight points really didn't do it justice. We were neck and neck with this team and leading for a lot of the game. Uh, But I I do want to get into... I, I want to get into specific players. We started talking about Lonzo Ball a little bit. And he's kind of one of the major storylines here because of the lack of playing time, I should say, right? He exited exactly with four minutes and 46 seconds in the third quarter, and he did not return for the rest of regulation. And the irony is that everyone's complaining that, oh, Lonzo Ball should have played more. Our rotations were whack. But when Alvin Gentry did put him back in, in overtime, that's when the Raptors actually kind of uh, took control of the game. So it's kind of a a catch-22 there. What were your thoughts on Lonzo Ball in his opening debut with the Pelicans? 
I was excited for him to take some of the shots that he took. I was certainly yeah. not excited about the one-legged three-pointer that he took. Yeah, that he drained, <laughs> right? He had, he had drained. No, yeah. no, no, no. He drained the one, I think, before that, and that was yeah. probably the reason for some. I don't know if it was overconfidence that wound up being, I'm not sure I should be doing this. I'm going to do it. Like, I don't know if he – I have to go back and look. I don't know if that was what he planned to do. I can tell you that he certainly seemed ready to fire based on the fact that he just made one. Uh, I thought it was kind of hilarious, honestly. I, I, I think that's just funny. Uh, but I would say that Lonzo, I thought, played okay. I, there was nothing that in his game that, that really made me leap out today and say, oh, yeah, this is the reason I was so excited to get him. And there was nothing that really frustrated me enough to be f- disappointed in him. I would say that one one thing that I, I've been saying for some time and I think is is a real thing, at least at the moment, is that Lonzo is really not the guy to create the initial penetration. I, I think he's more of a guy that you want in scramble situations. I know we've talked about it probably multiple podcasts, but that's where I stand on him. And those are very different things. And so it's sort of an awkward situation because the guy that you want to initiate your offense, you want getting below the free throw line if possible because you want the defense to be turned. You want people to be in, in kind of impossible decision-making scenarios where they say I have to leave someone open to, to go help on Lonzo or whatever. So I don't know if he's that primary guy yet. I'm not saying he won't ever be, but I, I don't think he's that right now. And I, that's what I thought going into it. And I, I think that even more now, I, again, it's just one game, so I'm not going to over-conclude, but based on what I've seen previously plus what I've seen tonight, that's exactly where I stand with him. The stats that I've seen have shown that Lonzo Ball only drove – to the basket three times. And that might, you know, that's kind of a subjective stat, I would say, because uh, you don't really know. He might be just driving for a couple. How many steps does it take towards the basket? For this, does it require for it to be considered a drive? I'm not really sure. But driving to the basket three times does not seem like a lot. Um, I know he didn't play as many minutes as he probably normally will, but it kind of, it kind of tends to agree with your point there that, Drew Holiday is more of the person who's supposed to be driving to the basket, and this you know, Lonzo Ball is more of a um, he's more of a facilitator after the play gets started. Does that make sense? Yes. Yeah, that's yeah, what no, I'm trying to. say. Yes, exactly. Yeah, and yeah, and yeah. Go ahead. No, you go ahead. <laughs> well, I was gonna say that I I think too like so if you look at this roster, there really aren't a lot of guys who can create that initial action. And I would even say that drew isn't always the best at it. Hence the whole idea that why we want him off the ball. Cause he can just focus on right. getting himself. So he wasn't really that last night. And we can probably talk more about that a little bit later. Yep. But I mean, this is something with Lonzo that we've talked about multiple times. This is not, this is not a surprise. And like you said, maybe it's fear of free throws. I, I, I don't yeah. think it's, you know, like these are just all different reasons why maybe he doesn't get there. One thing that we haven't said before that I think is important, Lonzo plays upright a whole lot. It's actually funny. Like, you look at him, he's extremely quick, and he moves around really well. But I'd say that, like, one of the oddest things about him is he really doesn't get downhill. Like, he really just straight up, like, he walks, like, almost like he has great, he runs like he has great posture or something like that. <laughs> like, you'd want to stand at your desk. It's a very bizarre thing. Like, I, I noticed it maybe, like, a game, maybe in the preseason. I, I just noticed, like, he's never really, like, leaning forward <laughs> and i don't know if that's a bad thing i maybe that's why he's really good at certain things with his quickness and not as good with others but maybe that's what he needs to create that initial separation is to really get down and to really explode maybe it's because he wants to keep his eyes open towards people to pass to i don't know it's just something that i noticed yeah it kind of reminds me of a. Uh of a evolutionary like all these animals who have grown just high enough to see over the grass kind of thing where yeah yeah i kind of i like the passing lane uh talk there i think maybe that might be it i'll have to i'll have to watch that i haven't really noticed how upright he is but uh but lonzo ball did one of the biggest surprises other than the two initial three pointers even though it did lead him to kind of jack up a third prayer i should say uh, I think we were trailing at the time, so that might have been part of it. But that was uh, one of many shots. I think Melly had an air ball late after he had was so hot throughout the entire game. I think that was one of the moments where our youth kind of showed late in the game, whereas 
was when Lonzo Ball kind of jacked up that third three and then Melly had airballed his last three after draining all of his others. Um, that was kind of an example of that. But Lonzo Ball did hit his two free throws. And I got to say, you know, I'm no shooting coach, but his free throws looked very smooth. He looked smoother. I, I, there was one shot, I think, in the middle of the game where his form looked really bad. I can't remember which shot it was. Um, but I thought for the most part, his release does look different. He certainly looked confident in it when he jacked up shots. And I, the confidence is a big part of even yeah. getting to a better shot. So, you know, again, it's not like I didn't walk out of that game thinking there's so much to love about Lonzo. I, I've, I liked Lonzo a lot coming in. I think he has a lot of things to work on because he's young and he, he just has flaws in his game. But I don't think that I saw anything that really changed my opinion of him, good or bad. Right. I think whole, ultimately yeah. we just learned that Alvin Gentry hasn't quite developed a rotation that perfect, perfectly fits his skill set yet. So I, was, I wasn't surprised by really anything Lonzo did either. Uh, I, I, we kind of, you've kind of taught me the player that I can expect him to be. I was a little surprised about his free throws. I thought that those were really smooth. But, but the only surprising part about Lonzo was honestly the lack of minutes played. But it's, it's pretty clear that Alvin Gentry just hasn't, it might have been matchup based. We don't really, don't really know what it is yet because we need a bigger sample size to kind of figure out what, and I think Alvin Gentry does too. I think Gentry needs more time to figure out who Lonzo plays best with and at what moments he plays best with. But we're going to, gosh, there's so many players we can talk about here. Let's, let's, let's do some negatives before we do some positives here. Let's talk about Drew Holiday and Derek Favors. Um, I think Drew is getting a lot of flack from Pelicans fans or Pella fans, as we call them on this show. Uh, Pella fans for he went six for fifteen from the field. He wasn't it wasn't his night offensively. I mean, there's really no other way to put it. It just was not his night. Uh, were is this just an off game? You think or uh, what? I, actually, I don't even know. Well, what's the alternative? Because I know Drew isn't that bad of a player, of course. But he definitely wasn't up to his MVP-like uh, qualities, as David Griffin has put. So uh, what were your thoughts on Drew's night? I I think that he was under-aggressive. Uh, this is not something that's new with Drew when he plays with either new people or people who are more alpha in their mentality. And I don't mean that Drew's not willing to step up, because that's, that's absolutely not what I believe. But I think that Drew is very unselfish in nature. And I think that if he sees someone who's rolling like Ingram was, I think he is more than happy to let that ride. And I think that sort of got him into his offense later than he probably should have for the team. Because one thing that Ingram doesn't do well, and I don't want to make this an Ingram talk because we're talking about Drew, Ingram is not really the guy to create for other people. Ingram is the guy you want either catching the ball in motion in the offense and finishing the rim, or you want him as the guy at the end of the shot clock once the play is broken to create his own shot. Because he's probably our best player in that in that regard. So... I thought he had the ball a whole lot, and, and that was good for Ingram when he was doing well or when his shots were falling, but I, I thought that Drew sort of took a backseat. Yeah. And look, am, am I going to – what's crazy about all this is, like, he got so much flack. What is wrong with people? Like, he, he's played well for us for years, and you're going to take one game and throw him under the bus? I think it's ridiculous. Well, Michael, like, you're really going to have to get about used to that, though, because there are a lot of new – Pella fans coming into the equation now that Zion's here. So you're going to have to get used to uh, the idea of educating fans based on the past who may have not uh, tuned into the games. I mean, how many primetime games did the Pelicans even have last year? Like, I, I mean, I don't know. Not sure. Yeah, not this many. Exactly. It wasn't exactly. This, yeah. yeah. I mean, the new people are into the game and I, I saw it too. You're not wrong. Like my whole Twitter jaded, feed, though. my whole Twitter feed was just, <laughs> And if I clicked on, you know, the smart beat writers, you know, your Mason Ginsburgs, your your Schmidt, and all the people we've had on this show, uh, and I was looking at the replies, and gosh, the replies are just like, <laughs> you, you know, any replies on Twitter are going to be crazy, right? But I was, you know, I think you need to, uh, you know, don't be so critical of all of the new Pella fans here. We want the new Pella fans to fill these seats, right? So... But yeah, I mean, there is going to be a fair amount of education standpoint from your end to kind of get them where they need to be. No, what I want to say is that I, I don't mind the jadedness, but you got to earn it. Like you can't, you can't walk into this and be jaded. Like yeah. the Pelicans fans that have actually been following the team deserve to be jaded. This is me being really cynical, but like I feel like <laughs> I've earned the right to be pessimistic no, sometimes. Yeah. 
because I've seen so much. Like I, so I don't know. I that's if you're gonna be jaded, be jaded for the right reasons. And like I, Drew's just been such a consistent good player right. for us. Really, outside of that one spell, I think it was early two seasons ago where he really struggled, and that was like at the time I think that his wife was yeah he was having, having the all the health issues. problems. She was yes. pre- yeah, like that was like right after that. So like I'm gonna give him a pass. I love Drew. I thought. He did not play particularly well last night, given his standards. He was 6 of 15, but that's not what bothers me because you you only have, like, if you look at percentages, he'll probably shoot closer to 47, 48%, right? right? And unfortunately, on a limited volume, the difference between, like, let's just say 6 of 15, which is, I think, 40%, um, and maybe, like, 7 or 8, like, that's a 7 or 8% gap based on one shot. So, like, you're you're sort of, like, you're over concluding on one shot that rimmed out or under conclude, whatever. Like right. you see what I'm going with this. So exactly. Um, yeah, I, I don't like it. I, I think Drew played poorly given his standards. I think he'll probably figure it out. Yeah, I think the ta- the main takeaway from uh, Drew Holiday's perspective is that he, now that, especially now that Zion's out, but even with Zion, he needs to understand at some point, you know, he needs to understand that he is the leader on this team, right? He is the veteran leader that we have. And uh, when it's one thing to make the right basketball play over and over again, and, you know, if, if someone like Brandon Ingram's hot, then, yeah, keep feeding him. But, but at some point, you know, especially when times are getting tough, like in the fourth quarter, Drew does kind of need to occasionally take over there. And I think that he kind of learned from this. I, I really do. I think that, uh, you know, I'm not saying that he looks at social media, but I think all of this new attention that the Pelicans are getting will actually make some players maybe more motivated. And I think Drew's going to come out the next game. I think it's against the Mavericks. I think he's going to have a great game, knowing that he should have took it, taken a more domineering role uh, especially later in the game when the Pelicans started struggling. I, I think that's completely fair. I think he didn't play well, and I, I agree. I think it'll be better the next time because of that. Let's talk about Brandon Ingram. I mean, you just mentioned him. Uh, Brandon Ingram was a really interesting player to watch last night because there were times, right, Michael, where he was actually seemed like one of our best players and one of our best offensive scoring threats. You mentioned already that he's probably one of our best shot creators, like an ISO ball. Uh, however, uh, I, I, w- I do want to point out before I kind of phrase a negative question on Brandon Ingram, I do want to point out that offensively, I do think he looked like the player that he did at the end of last season when LeBron was out and he kind of had to take control there and uh, score points on his own. And he looked like that player. And I want to say in the third quarter, when the Pelicans really struggled, that was when we had all the turnovers. That was when the shots weren't falling like they were in the first half. Brandon Ingram was the only reason that we stayed in that game in the third quarter. I mean, he was huge in the third quarter. Um, It kind of faded a little in the fourth. But my question to you is this. Does Brandon Ingram's style of play... I don't want to go. I don't want to call it a Carmelo Anthony style, but I think you can kind of get what I'm alluding to here. Does Brandon Ingram's style of play hurt the team sometimes, maybe, or hurt the offense, or is it kind of necessary uh, for him to kind of do it himself? I think if he plays in isolation all the time, it definitely hurts us. But I wouldn't say that he's always playing in isolation. So like. I think the best players are the ones who adapt to the way the defense is playing every single play and really every single moment. So, like, you might think, I'm about to score, but then the defense doubles you and right. you see someone's open. And that so you adapt. I would say that my problem with Ingram is I don't think he's integrated the two versions of himself where one is facilitating and one is scoring. So I think once, or if that ever happens, then you've got a really good player. But I, I think that's his issue right now. And I, the problem with isolation ball is even elite isolation players and at high volume, it's a very, very inefficient shot for almost everybody. And I want to say, like, even the most efficient players, like the way they play isolation is often equivalent to, you know, a shot from a lesser player in another sort of situation, like a spot up shot or whatever. I have to go back and look at the stats. All I know is it's definitely inefficient relative to other things. So, like, you don't want to be doing that consistently. And also, 
how are you going to get an offensive rebound or anything like that when you literally haven't forced any real motion from the other team on defense? Like, they're all ready. They're all packed in near the basket usually. They're closer to the ball. Like, you're not doing anything based off of that. So you don't you don't want that. Now, now with all that said, I don't think that Ingram is strictly an isolation player. I think that he has trouble finding a way to adapt in situations where he can be both aggressive and considering where his teammates are and what the defense is giving him. It's almost like he, he drives to the basket and then realizes that he needs to pass, and yes. but it's a little too late. He's like a step too late or a second too late, yep. I should say. And that's kind of the impression I get. It's not that I think he's selfish. I don't think he's, you know, uh, you know, this is my ball. I'm going to score, you know, he, like a ball hog, for example. But I do think that he's a, by the time that crisis comes, right, like you use the example when he gets doubled, uh, I do think he's a little late to dish out the ball to somebody. And when he does dish it out, it's not necessarily the ideal option or that maybe a guy like Lonzo Ball, maybe the pass like Lonzo Ball would have made. Yeah, and I think there was a play, actually one of my favorite plays from last night was when Drew slung this pass from the corner. Uh, it was like a really low pass. It was angling out towards uh, out of bounds and Ingram wound up getting it. I think he very quickly like faked somewhere else and the guy just went completely the other way. Yes, I know like, that's exactly the kind of stuff I like to see. About. It was yeah. a cool play. I don't, I don't think he even wound up making the shot, if I remember correctly. But it was a neat play, and it was a good, it was a good decision. And like, I like you said, I don't think he is. I, I wouldn't call him a highly unselfish player either. But I wouldn't yeah. say he's a selfish player. I think he's just wired to score, and he just needs to learn when that's appropriate and when. He just needs more adaptable. That's all. I just keep saying the same thing. I, well, basically, I think, if anything, it just kind of confirmed our belief. And you might disagree on this, but it confirmed my belief that ideally he would be coming off the bench as our primary focal point of the offense off the bench. But we don't have that luxury really anymore. Correct. Yeah, I wouldn't I, I wouldn't say that anymore because of Zion. Yeah. But with Zion, yeah, I think... I think it would make some sense because that because we saw plenty from Reddick to suggest that he will help with spacing. So yeah, which we should have known, already known anyway. Yeah. Da- we're gonna get to the uh, the ballers in a second, but two more strugglers here. Derek Favors, right? Uh, Derek Favors did not play well. I thought that Derek Favors, and you can kind of correct me if I say anything wrong here, but I'm gonna give my initial impressions. I, I thought Derek Favors had a great first quarter. And I got really excited about the acquisition again. I'm like, okay, yeah, Derek Favors, you know, he's going to take a bigger role without Zion. Like, we're going to need him on the boards. And then he got into a little foul trouble. And once he started picking up the fouls, he was kind of rendered a non-factor, especially in the second half. I don't want to venture to say liability, but definitely non-factor. But I was thinking about it, and I didn't think this at the time. But I've been thinking about that game all day pretty much. And... The more I kind of, the more I kind of ponder here, the one thing that keeps coming up to me is conditioning, right? Because he did miss all that time with the hamstring issue in preseason. Okay, I mean, he barely played in preseason, and I don't know if he's quite up to, con- to conditioning. And I thought about that at first, and I'm like, okay, yeah, because he kind of any player who kind of starts fast and then fades away, fades down the stretch. It's probably conditioning. But then what really made me solidify that belief was I just remember how our pace. I mean, I'm not used to the Pelicans playing at this fast of a pace. And gosh, that really probably, I mean, you really need to be in good condition to play in this type of pace. And ultimately, I think that Derek Favors is a lot better of a basketball player than we saw last night. But ultimately, I'm going to chalk this up. And you can just, I'm interested to hear your opinion, but I'm actually chalking this up almost completely to him not being in, I don't want to say basketball shape, but I'm going to say Pelican's pace shape in terms of his conditioning. And it's, it's mainly because of his hamstring injury. And I think that's why he had this great fast quarter when he's got all this energy. And then he just was rendered a non-factor. And I think it's purely a conditioning standpoint because of an injury. What did you think? I would say that we talked about this. I think the last podcast of the preseason was that he was the one so far who really hasn't left out the way that I expected him to leap out. Right. And I, I've been disappointed in what I've seen so far. I do think 
that a lot of it probably has to do with that hamstring and probably the conditioning that's resulting from that injury or the lack thereof. I think it's a good point that he's going to have to be running up and down the floor with the stars because the starters were insanely fast. And that's hard enough for even players who are more mobile. And not that Favors is immobile, but yeah. Favors is 6'10", right? So he's not going to move the same way that those smaller guys with less weight have. But he was moving when in I, the first quarter, though, right? I mean, He was moving, yeah. yeah. He just won't be able to get up and down quite as quickly. Even if he's mobile for a center, mobile for a center is very different from mobile for a small forward or a shooting guard yeah. or whatever. So I think in some ways that might have taken him out of the game. Some, I do think he was playing well, like you were saying. I think what I really want from Favors and what I – was looking at last night was that we really don't have rim protector outside of favors right now. And that's an awkward place to be. So if our defense is going to be good and they actually, so basically the Toronto Raptors last night got about twice as many shots at the rim as we did. And part of that, like, so they actually didn't finish at this extraordinary rate. They finished, I think around 48 or 49%, which is low for around the rim. But what happens is you're giving them that many shots around the rim. That's opening up opportunities for offensive rebounds, for fouls. Um, they got a whole lot of foul shots, about twice as many as we did, I think. Yeah. So I, I think what we really need to do is we need to find a way to not let people get there because favors in my mind, at least right now is the only guy who can really de- deter shots at the rim. I, I think we have some size at our guard positions and maybe one-on-one they can get in their guys grill. But I, I think largely Favors is our really only guy, and, and one of the problems with that is that Favors is a rim protector, but Favors is much more of a straight-up um, rim, rim protector than he is someone who just covers all the ground around the rim. Like, a Joel Embiid or a Rudy Gobert can get to so many more shots than Favors can, so even though Favors might contest shots well, he won't get to as many as shots uh, as as one of those guys, and I think that's an important uh, it's the distinction. I don't think you can call them the same thing. Yeah. So you're saying he needs to be kind of be in position on his man to be a good, uh, and th- at that point he's a really good shot pr- uh, rim protector, but he's not the type of rim protector who has this very long radius of, uh, I guess I should say range, but I'm thinking like this radius on the court where he can contest shots. No, that's from, right. Yeah. From like a few yeah. feet away. Yeah. Um, yeah, and I, I think that that puts the impetus on our guards to not let them get there. And that's what I thought one of the biggest problems yeah. was, was that they kept getting there over and over. Fred Van Fleet must have hit like oh my gosh. 70 shots at the rim that were contested. I don't know how he did it, but he, he tore us up all night. I thought Siakam was a particular problem because not only do we not have a lot of rim protection, we have three guards. And although two of them are excellent defenders, Siakam's like 6'8 or whatever. So if he gets a one-on-one with those guys and he can actually get to the rim, which he did plenty, he's going to finish over them. I am, s- Or he's going to create enough of a bad situation. Yeah, go ahead. I am so pumped right now that I have the Pelicans expert, Michael Pelache, agreeing with me so far right now. Because in my notes right here, and it was going to be my next topic actually, I have right here, I quote, the two things the Pelicans couldn't stop last night. Van Vliet driving to the basket and Pascal Siakam just in general. And, but, and you just mentioned both those, which makes me feel great about myself. But uh, aside from that, aside from that ego boost, uh, it makes me more optimistic about the Pelicans because what's one thing that could have helped both contesting Van, Van Vliet's driving to the basket and Pascal Siakam is Zion Williamson, right? I mean, that, the, the Raptors, in true championship team fashion, we're able to pinpoint our biggest weakness or our biggest loss, I guess we should say. And they just relentlessly went at it. I mean, Siakam was great. Uh, Van Vliet just was, gosh, I mean, he finishes with such soft touch at, and going at such a fast speed, you know, to the basket. I mean, we couldn't stop them. And that was the main difference in the game from a defensive standpoint. And I think that Zion Williamson's presence alone would have at least kind of mitigated those strengths there. To, I, I think we win this game with Zion. I'll, I'll throw it out, out there right now. I think we absolutely win this game with Zion just for those reasons alone. I, I would say I would agree that I think we would have won with Zion, but for a different reason. And it would have okay. been that we would have manufactured a whole lot more shots at the rim. 
and yeah. gotten a lot more free throws because we could not get there. And I think you talk about Lonzo and who he pairs well with. I think Zion is probably, well, probably for a lot of people, um, Zion is is sort of an elite pairing with Lonzo because Zion is extremely quick in his cuts. And once he gets ahead of steam, like you're really not stopping him. So I think that's where we really miss Zion. I think Zion's defense would have been good in some ways, like you're saying, for some of the rim protection and, and sort of contesting shots. But unfortunately, Zion is so lost on defense right now, as most rookies would be, that I, I don't think it would have necessarily, in the aggregate, helped our defense. Okay. If that makes sense. Okay. Well, I want to get to four more players real quick, but two of them I can knock out real quick. J.J. Redick and Melly here. I mean, they were just, there's really not that much analysis to be had other than the fact that they were just on fire, right? I mean, they they just made all of their shots. I think they were combined seven from nine from three-point range. That's going to regress, of course, right, folks? I mean, that's going to come down. But I, I'm really pumped up about the J.J. Redick edition right now, obviously more so than Derek Favors. And Melly did his job. I don't think he's quite there defensively, but he looks, fundamentally speaking, he looks like a good basketball player. He puts an effort. He boxes out. Uh, I think that, you know, and, and he hits shots, and he takes the right shots, too. Uh, and then Reddick's obviously a great veteran, but uh, briefly, what were your thoughts on them? You tend to agree there? Yeah, I completely agree. I thought, you know, it's funny, too, you mentioned the regression, and I think that that was what I was going to say, is that People all talking about how Melly played such an amazing game. And all I'm sitting there thinking is, like, these are the exact same shots that he would have taken any other game. Yeah, and they sometimes just they to go hit, in. and sometimes they won't. But yeah, at the same exactly. time, Drew's going to have positive regression, right? And other players right. yeah, will exactly. be able to kind of compensate for Redick and Melly eventually missing long-range shots. Right. Yeah, and Redick is one of the best shooters of all time. So, I mean, this yeah. isn't – he's not going to sustain this level, but he is, like, what you saw with his shooting. I mean, he is that good of a shooter, and he's taken them all on the run, basically. It's so much fun to watch. I, yeah. Like you said, though, I think Melly's – he's a – Melly played well because his shots went in. I thought he did some good things. I thought he was exposed in space defensively a little bit, um, and you said that, too. I, I, that's it. Like, he played in – okay game because yeah. he's in well no he played a very good game i'm sorry because he made his shots but like he's a pretty good player yeah. like he'll have nights like this where he's great in that regard and have other nights where he'll at least mount a threat and people will defend him and they'll prevent double teams but he might hurt you on defense and that's what you live with with a, a decent player yeah i want to get to two more players here that i think a lot of people are talking about right now uh one is unfortunately negative and one is positive uh which would you rather first Let's go negative. I want to finish okay. positive. Nikhil Alexander-Walker, right? I mean, he was one for 10, and he definitely wasn't shy. He kind of took a shot attempt nearly seemingly every time he touched the ball. Uh, we saw him in preseason, and he had an extremely high usage rate. And it wasn't too surprising, but he did seem to be I would say that in the first couple of minutes, I was like, okay, yeah. I mean, he's high usage. He's a, he's a really confident player. He's aggressive. That's good. Uh, he was able to get some other stats. He had, I think, a steal or two. I think he uh, had a couple boards and a couple assists. So he was making his presence known. But after about that sixth missed shot, I did get a little tired of it and starting to think like, okay, he might be a little kind of overzeller, a little anxious in his first game. And I read today that it was Toronto's hometown and a lot of his friends and family were watching up there and they even did a little tribute to him at halftime, uh, which I thought was nice by the Raptors. But, but I think that might have been a reason that he might have been trying to show out a little. And, you know, it's his first game as a rookie. What were your thoughts on Nikhil? I, I thought it looked like someone had hit him with a little bit of adrenaline before the game. Yeah. <laughs> like, it, it was – look, so there are some things that I really liked about what he did last night that are probably harder to, to see. There are some things that I didn't like. I think what you said nailed it. So, Nikhil actually almost had a shot per minute, which is pretty crazy. Like, <laughs> that would be all-time levels of usage. That is what we saw in the preseason I think he needs to learn to pick his spots better. But I also think that some of those shots, he was wide open. And yeah. I, I thought that his shot was just off last night. And I will never I will never complain about a guy taking a wide open three. That's a good shot, and you live with it. 
And because he will take that open shots, defenses won't leave him open. The problem was really that they ran him as point in the second unit, which I thought was the right move. This is something we've talked about plenty. But I thought that if you're going to run a second unit, you probably need to cut back a little bit on your aggression. I, I don't think that you can get a team, even if a shot looks good at the very beginning of the shot clock, if it's not so great and wide open that you know, you're know you're taking basically a layup equivalent at three or whatever, I think you need to, to be more persistent in, in how you want to run the offense. And you, people just need to touch the ball. So I, that's what I dialed back on. What I did like, and I'm not trying to, to nitpick the good, not what's the opposite of nitpick, like uh, I guess. Uh, exaggerate. Yeah, I, I think there were some good things. One of them was I thought he was very active trying to box out his man. There was one time where he boxed out a Baca who's much taller than he is, and he didn't get the rebound, but someone else did because of his work. Uh, there was another play, and now I'm blanking on it, that was really good. Um, oh, yeah, I think he had a really good pass at some point. as like a bounce entry to someone that might have been yeah. cutting towards the goal. Uh, there were good, there's good things, and I thought, again, I think he navigates a pick and roll as well as almost anybody on our team, and I think in time he's going to be a very good primary initiator he just needs to cut back on the aggression some because you can't you can't shoot you can't shoot a shot per minute and and that's really it and maybe like you're saying it's because he he had friends and family there it was also his first game it's like it really did look like someone hit him with some like sort of drug before the game yeah. to like get him amped up yeah i think that Nikhil alexander walker also kind of suffered from really high expectations we talked a little about a little bit about it at the beginning of the podcast where you know, there's more Pella fans out there now. And I think a lot of people who were paying attention the preseason had a lot of, uh, I wouldn't say unrealistic expectations. So we do think he's going to be a very good player. But I think that they just assumed that his preseason was just going to translate over to the regular season, like automatically. And so they were extra, extra disappointed when he went one for 10. But in the reality is, you know, if he wouldn't have had that great preseason, Right. It's it's almost like what you were saying earlier when the Pelicans actually played the defending champs to the wire and then we faltered in overtime. So everyone's freaking out about the team. You know, it's almost like if Nikhil Alexander wouldn't have been that great in summer league and wouldn't have, you know, been that uh, dominant in preseason. And then he goes out and shoots one for 10. Everybody would be like, oh, yeah, it's his first game. His second, I mean, he's, you know, he's our second pick as a rookie. Oh, actually, he was our third draft pick. But, you know, late first rounder, third draft pick, you know, it, it's his first game. Let's give him a pass, you know. But now, because he was so dominant in the preseason, everybody was like, oh, what a disappointment, you know. Right, and he's just making, he's just missing some of the same shots he would have hit before. Would he have gone 70% from the field if he had hit the, the same shots? No, but maybe he would have gone, yeah. you know, 35, 40. He had a couple of bad passes, but look, this is a rookie. Yeah. You will have bumps and bruises. Just expect it. Yeah. Josh Hart was a, I, I don't want to go as far as to call him a stud, but I'm going to call him a very, very pleasant surprise. Uh, his rebounding was really what caught my eye. I mean, he hit a three late in, in clutch time, which was great and all. Uh, and he made some plays. He drove to the basket a couple of times. But his rebounding was what really caught my eye because he just – he's not just – you know, he has a double-double. I think he was 15 and 10. But this wasn't an ordinary double-double where it's like, okay, you know, you have the center who just happened to be under the basket and grabbed 10 boards because they landed on This guy was going up like – jumping out of the gym to get these rebounds, okay? And he was fearlessly attacking the boards, and I think he may have been doing it. Maybe the team sent a message like, okay, we need to rebound more now that Zion's out. I'm, I'm not sure. Maybe that's just his game, and I've just never realized it when he was a Laker. But I was just very impressed with the way that he attacked, uh, you know, balls that were bouncing really high off the rim. And he even actually got hurt doing it at one point. He... uh he jumped probably about two or three feet in the air, landed on some guy's ankle, and then went to the locker room, what looked like to be a twisted or sprained ankle. And then he actually returned, and he kept on doing it. It didn't, didn't phase him at all. Um, so I don't know. That was my main takeaway from Josh Hart. But we had talked about, uh, Michael, we had talked about where, kind of being confused on where he fits into this rotation. And now that Zion's out, yeah, it kind of opens up a spot. But I think he showed last night that, yeah, he's not always going to shoot like that. And he's not always going to grab 10 boards. 
But I think he showed that it's clear based on his effort that he at least belongs in the rotation, wouldn't you say? I would, and I would say that I was more surprised by that than pretty much anything yeah, else me in the too. game. I, like he's not gonna, he's not gonna get like you said. It, it's all a lot of it's unsustainable, but that doesn't mean that when you regress back from a very like almost a great game to a, a good game, that's not bad when you're good. So like I thought the rebounding over his career, he's closer to like six rebounds per thirty six. That's what I would expect. I mean, he obviously out rebounded that last night by a pretty substantial margin, but I, I would say that. What I liked about him is I think he's a steady player. He actually reminds me a lot of Ariza for some reason. He just, like, I don't know what it is. Maybe it's just the way he moves or something. And I'm just drawing that comparison because he happened to play for the Hornets. and I think it was just the Hornets, not the Pelicans. But So I think he's steady. I don't think he makes a lot of dumb decisions. And I think he's aggressive in looking for his own shot. Maybe because he knows that he needs to be aggressive to get, get into rotation. But I thought he played really well. I, I really was happy with him i'm not going sky high with it because i don't think he's one of our best players or anything but like you said i i do think he deserves a crack at the rotation so we've spent a while talking about this game which is great i mean it's the opening game national tv and everything like that um my last and final question just briefly would going into the next game i think a lot of fans want to know would you make any lineup changes who Man, that's a tough one. Uh, I would find a way to get Hart minutes right now. I, I think that he's he deserves them. I think that um, was one of the reasons that I mean I don't know if it directly related to Lonzo sitting out and and Redick sitting out late, but I think one of the reasons that Gentry kind of had those strange lineups late is because he didn't want to take Hart off the court. I, I really I, do. I think it's a fair assumption. I think you got to get him in the second unit, see if he can continue to play like this. And, and if he is playing like this, then you do sit someone else out for the sake of playing him late. Yeah. And, yeah, I, I mean, yeah, I, I wouldn't make a lot of other major rotations. I thought it was people were all mad at Gentry for the, the crazy rotations. Well, the reason that the team could play as fast as it did at the beginning and build up the lead that it did at the beginning was specifically because they were running that crazy pace. And they can only do that if you run a deep bench. So you can't have it both ways. Yeah, by the really way, can't. I loved – what Mason Ginsburg tweeted during the game that the lineup, that the substitutions were equivalent to a hockey lineup change uh, or line change is what they call it. That was yeah. awesome. Where you could, where you're just kind of subbing five guys in and five guys out at a time. That is, that's a great point that you made because I mean, it's a great name that or analogy that Mason coined there, but it's also a great point that you made because in order to maintain this, what I think will be near league high or, or league high pace, uh, the Pelicans are going to ha- have to not only be deep, but also subbing a lot. I mean, you need players to be getting, you know, their minutes of rest at a time. So you're going to have, when you're playing at this high pace, you're going to have interesting lineup combos because some players are going to be more tired than others and need a minute or two more because they're just running the entire game. Yep, I agree. Um, let's. Hey, we've covered this. Uh, we've really hit this first game hard, all right? I mean, th- that's awesome, though. And we won't be able to go into that much analysis in the future because hopefully, you know, we do a weekly podcast and there will be about two or three games each week that we'll have to cover starting with, uh, for next week, starting with Dallas's home game. I'm sorry, the Pelicans' home opener against the Dallas Mavericks on Friday, I believe. Uh, but we haven't even covered, actually, I would say the biggest news of the last week, which is crazy because we've had our opener. But Zion Williamson, I think the day after we finished recording our last podcast, it came out that Zion Williamson had a torn meniscus. And we knew that he had a knee injury at the time of our last podcast episode, but we didn't, it wasn't diagnosed. There were rumors about a torn meniscus, and those rumors came to fruition. It is, in fact, a torn meniscus. The diagnosis is out from six to eight weeks is the timetable there. Uh, that puts him on track for late December, uh, though I'm an injury pessimist, and I don't think we're going. I think it's more likely than not that we're not going to see Zion until 2020, the start of 2020, um, which is about two months and uh, two weeks, I would say. So we've discussed a lot about how Zion's absence has affected the team just in the first game. But, Michael, what were what were your 
thoughts on this? I so I didn't love it. Yeah, of course not. <laughs> uh, it's never ideal to have your your best, well, second best player. I'm sorry, your second best player. How does it hurt us? And what do we start? need to do to recover? I guess is a better question. That's the question I should have asked. I think it hurts us in that we have to slide up a lot of people, and it kills us on the boards. Our, our rebounding percentage last night was abysmal and would have been easily the worst mark in the league last year. It's only one game, so like not when you freak out about yeah. it. But you know, we lose some size. You got to slide people up. There, there are some advantages to that. You're faster. You probably are more well spaced, but you're also giving up more rebounding. Um, you know, we obviously don't have quite as much depth as we did before. Although it seems like almost a weird thing to say that we that it hurts us because we do have that much depth. Uh, I think the main the main way it hurts us is that we don't have any longer a guy who can get to the rim at will the way that he can. I mean, he he's just really – he is on a level with, like, LeBron in terms of getting to the rim, which is really I, – I, I've said this before. It's crazy to say, but it's not – this is not me exaggerating. He is that good at getting to the rim. Um, yeah, the Pelicans, not LeBron in other ways, but yeah. yeah. The Pelicans bench did outscore the Raptors 57-23, to 23, but you did mention – that I think they doubled their free throw. Uh, sorry, their free throw attempts. The Raptors had twice as as many as of those as we did. I think, or something around that number. It was right around that. Yeah, yeah. and that's what Zion. You know, Zion definitely affects that in on in both directions, really. Yeah, and your free throws also help you to get your defense set, and that's one of the nice things about it is that it you know gives everybody a breather, which maybe actually maybe that works against us. But but if you have someone who gets to the line, what you're doing is you're effectively creating a situation where like everybody knows what's going to happen it's a lot easier to get back on defense than it is when you're when you have a missed shot you know a normal missed shot when everybody's in motion and maybe you're not in the, the best position to get back and defend so and, and not only that really just like the overall efficiency of the team and when you have someone shooting you know i don't he's not gonna be 70 something percent like he was in the preseason but if he's shooting even 60 percent you're you're basically pulling your average up you're you're pulling your average to be more efficient and so when you lose that you're going to lose some efficiency and that's that not like they were a bad offense last night they were actually perfectly fine it was their defense that sucked um and they they need some serious work on the boards that's really what it is yeah in my opinion this is already one game where if we had zion i think we highly likely would have won the game I think it's definitely fair to say. So not only is he already hurting us in the win, there, does the injury already hurt us in the win-loss capacity there? But, yeah, I mean, it's obviously very depressing. I mean, we could sit here and talk about how depressing it is, you know, how how much we were looking forward to Zion's debut and how much hype there was. We're not going to waste a lot of time on that. I think the real story at this point now is what we can do to recover and you know, how it really impacted us. We've covered all that. The last notion we need to hit here is the quote that David Griffin said prior to the game when he was asked about Zion Williamson. And he said, quote, this notion that happened, that this happened because of his poor conditioning is asinine. Uh, Michael, this was, as we predicted on a couple episodes ago, that all the the big media outlets like ESPN were going to be talking about that extra weight and how it affected his health. And then here we are like not the season hadn't even started yet. And they're already talking about how, you know, he's too heavy and it affects the knee. Half the pundits were saying that, uh, yeah, I think it was a debate on around the horn and all those types of shows. Michael, what, what is your take on, or what is your opinion? I know you're not a doctor, but what is your opinion on, is there any credence, I should say, to the idea or theory that him being playing too heavy was either a cause for his knee injury or a cause for concern in the future based on his knee injury? So not to be nitpicky, but I would say that the too heavy part is what really needs to be determined. Because if he is too heavy, then the answer is unequivocally yes. So they did a study, I don't know how many years ago, it was in, they mentioned something about Derek Rose and how like it was something crazy like every 10 pounds of extra weight you exert like four times as much stress on your knees or something like that right, so I remember that yeah I, yeah so like i don't i mean if you're overweight of course like it's gonna affect your joints so in that regard yeah no no doubt but whether zion's overweight is a different question that was kind of what griffin took was that he said look it's all pretty much muscle so like you really can't complain about the weight or the conditioning being the problem 
what I take from all of it is this. I think he's had a knee history, like a knee injury history. That's what's concerning. I, I, I don't. Yeah. The reason is for the trainers to decide. I don't I don't care. Like I, I have no say in that, nor do I have any knowledge to back that up. So what they do with him, I don't know. What's concerning is that this has been a thing, I think dating back to high school, and the way that he plays is is borderline reckless, which yeah. is what we love about him, but it's also what scares us. So like some people are getting on and saying, Oh, this is ridiculous, like none of this stuff matters and, and look, I don't know if the weight matters. But you can't like people are actually building it up as they're like, oh, Zion, he didn't even know he was hurt. That's how amazing he is. <laughs> like, how can you look at that news and someone getting a surgery and say, like, I'm excited about this. That's ridiculous. But at the same time, people were saying now his career is going to be a bust or whatever. That's stupid. Ru- Russell Westbrook had, I want to say, at least two ACL surgeries. And Russell Westbrook is as explosive as ever. He's not carrying the weight that Zion is, but like there are a lot of people who have come back from ACL surgeries and been really strong. I think it wasn't Peterson the one that won the MVP after he tore his ACL. Yeah. That's a big dude too. I will say in the NFL, it it is actually very rare that somebody comes back from the ACL within that first season back from their ACL. They usually struggle. Uh, They they might play 16 games, but they usually struggle. It's that second year back where they kind of regain their explosiveness in a hundred percent. But that's football though. That's ACL. That's yeah, ACL and that's ACL. This I, is I'm MCL. saying that's worse. Yeah, yeah. this is MCL. No, 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 not MCL. Uh, MCL is different. I think that's a different. No, I know it's different. I'm saying name. that this is lesser, so that's good. I mean, it's not. No, no, no. no. Oh, go ahead. I'm saying like it's actually a different thing. Like meniscus is not MCL. I don't think. Oh, so I think right. Of course, like it's a medial collateral ligament or something like that is the yeah. MCL, and the meniscus is different. And I think he tore his lateral meniscus. And meniscus injuries just aren't as serious as ACL. So, like, I guess my point is, if Westbrook can come back from it, yeah. that's much more serious. Then, like, there's at least the plausibility that, like, that he could actually wind up being just fine. We don't know, but they they don't write him off yet. I think if you're going to critique the weight aspect of this in any way, I don't think it should be the idea where so many people are saying that, oh, you know he tore his meniscus because he was overweight or it contributed to that. I think that I don't want to say that that's asinine, but it seems, it does seem wrong to me. If you're going to, if you're going to critique his weight or be worried about it in any capacity, I would say that now that he's hurt, I could see a scenario where he does come back a little heavier than he's supposed, than his normal playing weight, just because when you are having when you are rehabbing, it's tough for you to exercise, right? I mean, it's very simple, right? You can't, it's tough for you to exercise and you can't move as much. So obviously it's going to be tougher, you know, shedding pounds and getting those calories down. And uh, so from that standpoint, I could see the weight potentially being a problem right when he comes back. You want to make sure that he's obviously in basketball shape when he comes back. And that might even add uh a week or two to this recovery especially after seeing what i think was you know Derek favor struggling with that last night uh i think if you're going to be playing for the new orleans pelicans this year you better have your track shoes on right so yeah yeah i, mean, I think this is the yeah. op- this is the opportunity for nelson man like people are all like well it's just nelson's fault which is Man, I don't know where people get these opinions, but like, yeah, no. like Aaron Nelson will fundamentally change everything that Zion does within a few months um, when he already had a knee injury. Like, it's ridiculous. And this is where he has a chance to shine. And we'll never know what Zion would have looked like with another trainer. But look, if, if this guy's what people say he is, then like, geez, like give the guy a chance to, to make a difference, you know, over the right. course of a longer period of time. Right. Long term, I'm not worried about this really at all, honestly. Like maybe like 2% uh, is of, of me is worried about this affecting him long term. But obviously this is an extremely depressing thing for this season. I mean, if the Pelicans uh, struggle out of the gate, uh, I'm not freaking out about this 0-1 deal, of course, because I actually am more optimistic about this team now having watched that Toronto game. But if the Pelicans do struggle out of the gate against the Western Conference and he doesn't come back until, let's say, uh, January 1st in 2020, you know, and we're already, I don't know, 
let's say seven games back from really seventh or eighth seed, it might, this injury literally might change our total philosophy on the season and bring up that balancing scale that we've already been talking about where uh, on prior episodes, where we put a lot more emphasis on player development as opposed to win now. Yeah. And I think too, like you use the percentage thing. I want to go with the threat level midnight thing from the office. Like (laughs) if I were in terms of being worried about him, I would say I'm like, at 11 a.m. I'm, I, the best thing I've heard, and I, this is just a very concise explanation from uh, Jason Calmes on the uh, on the group chat for Bourbon Street Shots, he said his eyes are open. Like, you're, you're aware yeah. that this could become a problem. You're not freaking out yet, um, but your eyes are open, and I think that's the best way to put it. Yeah. Well, hey, uh, we today was a long podcast, man. I think we got to wrap up this week's episode here. Uh, thank you all so much for tuning in to On The Fly, the official Pelicans podcast for HoopBall.com. In-flight, inside for the sharpest Pella fans. As a reminder, if you like what you heard today, please subscribe to On The Fly and give us a five-star rating on iTunes or whatever your podcast provider is. You can also follow us on Twitter at Mike underscore Pelicans, and I'm at Fantasy Law Guy. See you next week. Bye. This has been a Hoop Ball presentation. What's so special about Hero Bread's soft, fluffy, and delicious breads, buns, and tortillas? These ultra-low net-carb baked goods contain zero sugar, fewer calories, and more protein than the leading brands and are high in fiber to support gut health. Shop now at Hero.co.